Well, when the Titanic embarked on her maiden voyage from uh, Britain making its way to America, there was a gentleman on the board of the ship by the name of John Harper. He and his six-year-old daughter were on the Titanic. John Harper, uh, when the when the he, the reason that he was on the Titanic, he was actually heading over from uh, England to America so that he could pastor the Moody Bible Church in Chicago. Well, after the, the Titanic hit the, the famous iceberg and began to, to sink, Harper was able to secure a, a rescue boat, or his daughter on one of the rescue boats, and because he was a widower, he actually had the opportunity to get on that boat as well because he was the only caretaker for his daughter. But he chose not to because he had work to do. Harper, it is reported, went around on that ship from passenger to passenger and pleaded with people to trust in Christ, to trust in Christ. It's actually reported that he, he, would, he could be heard saying things like this, all who, are wi- all who are women, all who are children, all who are unsaved, get on the lifeboats. You see, Harper wanted the unsaved to get on the lifeboats because he wanted them to have more of an opportunity to trust in Christ, to not sink with the ship. Well, as he's going from passenger to passenger, he ends up coming up to a gentleman who just outright rejects the gospel. He says, I don't want any of this. Harper takes off his life vest, places it on the gentleman, and says, you need this more than I do. Well, Harper ends up being one of the victims of the Titanic sinking. He ends up in the open water. Hypothermia overtakes him and he sinks down into the ocean blue to be with his Lord. Harper was a man who stayed focused in the midst of suffering. What do you think about this? What is the possibility that God's purpose for your suffering is bigger than you? What if God's purpose in your suffering is actually to bring you into contact with somebody so that he can use you as an instrument to actually draw them to himself. We're going to see that vivid reality today in our passage as Paul and Silas's uh, suffering leads to the conversion of the Philippian jailer. Now, we've been uh, studying through the book of Acts, and Pastor Jeff has mentioned on several occasions that the one-word theme for the book of Acts is witness. If you remember in the very first chapter, Uh, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's what we've seen. We've seen him witnessing going from Jerusalem and the church growing, and now we're in Europe, in, in Macedonia. One of the most astounding things, I think, for me in studying through this is the reality of how, how often the church is growing in the midst of suffering. Just think about this as one example. Think about when Stephen is stoned, it says on that day, a great persecution arose against the church, and this is in Jerusalem, and all the believers were scattered. And what happens? They go to different regions, different geographies, encountering different people that they may have never even encountered before in their lives. They begin to share the gospel. People are converted. The church grows in the midst of suffering. Just as a side note, isn't it, isn't it amazing to see how God can use suffering to bring us into contact with people that we would never in normally in normal life be in contact with? That's the sovereign hand of God at work. Well, now we're in our second missionary journey, Paul's second missionary journey. 
And we, the Holy Spirit has directed them into Macedonia. A couple weeks ago, uh, we uh, saw how they came into Philippi, the Roman colony of Philippi, and how the Lord had to open Lydia's heart in order for her to believe. I encourage you to look at that, that message as God does a heart transplant in Lydia. Last week, Jeff shared with us about the exorcism of, of the demon out of the slave, uh, the slave possessed, or the, the demon possessed girl that was a slave. And our, our passage today actually has great, what, what happened there actually has great bearing on our passage today. And we'll get to that in just a bit. But the one main encouragement that I want you to take away from this passage today is this stay focused. Because God uses the suffering of his children for the salvation of his enemies. Question that I, this passage is going to answer for us is what do, I, what do we need to do, what do we need to focus on in order to be faithful witnesses in the midst of suffering? What do we need to focus on to be faithful witnesses in the midst of suffering? And I want to, to, to show you three focal points that Paul and Silas actually model for us uh, in, this, in this text today. The first one is this. What do I need to focus on? Focus vertically on God and glorifying Him in your circumstances. Focus vertically on God and glorifying Him in your circumstances. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, we've got to think about the context here. <laughs> By the time that Paul and Silas are, are brought into the custody of the Philippian jailer, they are victims of massive injustice. The slave girl's owners, they were ticked off that their income source had been drained. You see, they had a vested interest in this slave girl. And because that vested interest was taken away from them, they were irate. It says that they dragged them into the marketplace. They probably dragged them by the heels of their feet. And they brought them before the magistrates. And as they brought them there, they just began to spout lies about Paul. You notice, they don't even mention the slave girl. They don't mention the demon exorcism. They don't mention any of that. They start talking about stuff that's, that's not even true. And so they are, they are slandered. Lies were told about them. They're also victims of a kangaroo court. You know what a kangaroo court is? It's, a, it's an unfair trial. It doesn't follow the standards of, of law. And so as a result of this kangaroo court that the magistrates give them, they are uh, brought to a place where they are, are beaten with rods. Now, if you don't know what that is, basically what, what happened is they would take these canes and they would bind them together and then they would take the canes and, and they would break them or hit them across the back, beat them across the back of criminals. Now, they're called stripes. What happens is the marks that they leave behind because the stripes actually are, are the flesh opening up and you can actually see the innards of a person. Vertebra were known to, to break as they beat people with rods. Or internal organ damage. Um, people were known to, to actually die from this. And so by the time the Philippian jailer gets them, man, they are a bloody mess, victims of massive injustice. But if that wasn't enough, what happens when he gets them? Well, he takes them into the jail. Jails during that time, by the way, or prisons during that time, were, were not known to be uh, pleasant, harsh condition, filthy, nasty, stinky, infested with lice and rats and disease. And if that wasn't enough, he takes, takes them and fastens wooden stocks on them 
on their on their feet and what they that was they had a wooden stocks had a twofold purpose first purpose was to actually keep the prisoner secure the second purpose was to actually inflict torture on that person that had the on the prisoner that had the stocks on them so needless to say Paul and Silas are in a a hopeless seemingly hopeless situation so what do they do well it says about midnight they had had enough and say so they took out their metal mugs and they started to rake them across the prison bars saying we've had enough of this we want to see the magistrate no it says about midnight they crumbled in despair and they began to whimper why me why me why me no it says about midnight Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Think about this. Victims of injustice and unthinkable pain are glorifying God in one of the most darkest moments of their lives. So what does it look like to glorify God in one of the darkest moments of your life? I want, to, I want you to see four marks of what it looks like to glorify God in suffering in this one verse, in, in verse 25. But before I give you those four marks, I just want to toss out a few responses to suffering that we need to, we need to avoid. I think some people think that these responses actually glorify God, when in actuality they diminish God's glory. And so let me give you those first. First, it does not glorify God to suffer like a stoic. You know what that means? That means you suffer, but you suppress your feelings. You hide what's really going on. You don't complain. You look like suffering doesn't even bother you. You see, God didn't make us robots. God made us people with feelings. And if you think that expressing your feelings in the midst of suffering is, is wrong, I want to encourage you to just flip through the, the book of Psalms. Look at all the suffering. Look at all the feelings that are being expressed. One example of that is this. Psalm 6.6, I am weary with my moaning. Sometimes we feel like that in suffering, don't we? I, every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. And so it doesn't glorify God to suffer like a stoic. Secondly, it doesn't glorify God to suffer with a positive attitude that is based on nothing but blind faith. In other words, it's based, not based on anything objective, something that God has said or something that God has promised. And so this manifests itself a lot of times in, like this. Oh, I just know everything's going to turn out all right. Really? I mean, unless you're talking about the new heaven and the new earth, you really don't know that everything's going to turn out all right. And so that doesn't glorify God when it's not based on anything that he said. Thirdly, it does not glorify God to suffer with a conqueror attitude. Now, this is prevalent. If you say when you're going through suffering, oh, I'm a strong woman, I'll get through this. Or I'm a tough man, I'll get through this. Notice who Who's glory? Who gets the glory for that? The person actually saying that. And by the way, none of it's true. You know why? Ten out of ten people die. So you're not tough enough to survive everything. And so those are a few responses that we need to be careful to avoid. But now I want you to see in this verse the four marks of what it looks like to suffer in a way that we glorify God in our suffering. First, it glorifies God when we suffer in a posture of dependence. A posture of dependence. Look what it says. It says, Paul and Silas were praying. Prayer by its very nature requires a posture of dependence. You're, you're acknowledging that God is God and that you're not. 
that God is sovereign and that you're not, that God actually has what you lack. And so that's, that's, uh, that's what we see with Paul and Silas. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence either that we see that this is the first activity in the prison cell that we see of Paul and Silas. They are praying, and I think it's not a coincidence because I think one of the most, one of the inevitable questions that comes to mind when we read a passage like this is, how? How in the world are they able to sing praises to God in a midst of a, a, a horrific circumstance like that? Well, the answer to that question is, and maybe you ask that question yourself, how am I able to, to, to sing praises to God in the midst of whatever I'm going through right now? Well, the answer to that question is, <laughs> you can't. You can't. You don't have the ability to do that. But that's why prayer is a means of grace. It's like the, the plug that connects us to a power source that gives us a power that's not our own. It says that, uh, you may remember it, by the way, in, in, in Acts chapter 4, as Peter and John had been, just been threatened by the, by the Jewish leaders that they shouldn't speak of Jesus anymore, and the church gathers together to pray, and they're praying for something that they don't possess, which is boldness. And you remember what happens after that? It says in verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So prayer connected them to a power source that enabled them to do what they couldn't do in their own strength. Well, for us in Christ, we have an all-access pass to the throne of grace. And God is glorified when we are regulars there, when we are regulars at his feet, seeking what we ourselves don't possess. Secondly, it glorifies God when we suffer with lips that are filled with God-exalting praise. Lips that are filled with God-exalting praise. It says that Paul and Silas were singing hymns to God. These are songs of praise. Now, we don't know exactly what they were singing, but chances are it was probably one of the Psalms. And we can be sure that if it was the Psalms or any other song for that, that matter, they would be speaking of God's glorious attributes, his excellencies, his perfections, things like his holiness, his sovereignty, his righteousness, his mercy. That's what these prisoners are hearing, by the way. Do you know that exalting God with our voices is actually one of our primary purposes, even in the midst of suffering? You, uh, you can hear this quite clearly in, in uh, 1 Peter 2.9. Peter's writing to suffering churches when he writes this, by the way. He says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here's the purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You know, I think... One of the reasons that some of us have such a difficult time singing praises, exalting God in the midst of our suffering is because sometimes we let our suffering inform our theology instead of letting our theology inform our suffering. I'll say it another way. We'll let our, we let our suffering inform what we believe about God rather letting God tell us what he is like and tell us what our suffering is like. And so I think we have that problem. But the reality is, is that God hasn't changed when we suffer. He is just as worthy of praise in our suffering as he is in our prosperity. Thirdly, what does it look like to glorify to God? It glorifies God when we exalt him publicly. We exalt him publicly. It says that the prisoners were listening. So Paul and Silas are singing, praying, and singing loud enough for all the prisoners to hear. 
Maybe you're here today, or maybe you're listening online. Maybe you think, well, you know what? I just, I just think faith is a private matter. Well, I want to love you enough to tell you that you're probably speaking a lie from the pit of hell because the Satan would love nothing more for us to buy into that cultural lie. See, God has given us, Christ himself has given us a great commission. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. And you and I, we cannot do that by keeping our faith private. We are authorized and commanded by him to make it public. Fourthly, it glorifies God when our response to suffering is peculiar. It's peculiar. Just think about this. Just think about what these prisoners that are in the prison with Paul and Silas, think about what they're used to when a new prisoner comes into, on, onto the cell block. They're used to that first night especially hearing probably anger, colorful language, uh, grumbling. But this night, they hear something quite peculiar, quite unexpected, something that, that actually piques and attracts their attention. Praise to God in the midst of the most horrific circumstances. See, church, this is attractional worship, what's going on. See, Paul and Silas, they don't, they don't need smoke machines and thumping sound systems and concert lights or skinny jeans. That's for you, Jeff. They don't need any of that. All they need in the midst of what they're going through, they just need to show that there's a surpassing power in their frail bodies, and they do that through genuine, heartfelt worship. So let's be peculiar when we suffer, whether it's in a chair with chemotherapy pumping through our veins, or whether it's in the funeral home as we are a people who are grieving with hope. Let's be peculiar. Secondly, what do, what do I need to focus on to be a faithful witness in suffering? Focus horizontally. This is verses 26 through 28. Focus horizontally. Be sensitive, sensitive to what God is doing in the lives of those around you. And suddenly, verse 26, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a, cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. So not unlike the church's prayer for boldness back in Acts chapter 4 that I mentioned earlier, God shakes the earth in the context of Paul and Silas praying. Now we know that this is not merely a coincidental earthquake. There were earthquakes known to be uh, in that region, but this was not coincidental for two reasons. One, it was so violent that it shook the foundations of the prison. And two, it was so precise that it happened to open every single door in the prison and it happened to unloosen every single bond on every single prisoner. And so we know it's not coincidental. The invisible God is on, hand of God is on the move. Now what happens next? It actually exposes hearts. Exposes the jailer's heart and exposes Paul and Silas's heart. Let's start with the jailer. You know, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the jailer took his job very seriously. I mean, you just think, when they hand him over, they, they ordered the jailer to, to keep the prisoners secure. And so he takes the most extreme measures that he can, putting them in the inner prison, fastening them in the stocks. See, this was a jailer who ran a tight ship. Perhaps he was known throughout Philippi as being an exemplary jailer. Maybe he, his prison that he, he was the head of, maybe it was like the Alcatraz of Macedonia. 
a, a prison that was known to be the securest, securest place that you could be. We don't know any of that, but what we do know is that when his jail fell apart, he fell apart. You see, when the earthquake jostled him awake, and he looked and he looked down that hall in the prison and, and he saw that those doors were sw- swung open. You could just imagine him saying, No! I'm waking you up this morning. No! You see, he thought, he was convinced in his own mind that, that those prisoners had escaped. And you can imagine just thoughts circulating through his mind. I'm going to lose my position. They're going to they're punish me. My reputation, it's going to be tarnished. I'm going to be the object of ridicule all throughout Macedonia. And so he took out his sword, a tiny sword, and he pressed the sharp tip against his heart to take his own life. You see, all of his identity, everything that he associated with life, all of his hopes and dreams were bound in that position as a jailer. And so when the position disintegrated before his very eyes his identity disintegrated his life disintegrated his hopes and dreams disintegrated and so we see the philippian jailer's heart exposed but we also see the heart of paul and silas exposed just think about this the jailer is is not their friend (laughs) he's their enemy the jailer is a participant in their persecution he's the one that's fastened these painful stocks around their legs around their feet and so as they look at the, this, this situation unfolds where, where God had freed them from their prison bonds. But you know what? God had not freed them from loving their enemy. And so Paul and Silas have a choice. They can either stay silent, let the Philippian jailer take his own life and plunge himself into hell. Or they can speak up, forgoing their freedom And they can be the object of blessing for their enemy. And we know the choice that they make. As Paul cries out, do not harm yourself. For for we're all here. We're here. Well, brothers and sisters, every day, all around you and all around me, there are people whose hopes have been dried up. Things that they've placed their life in, they've associated life in, they've associated their identity in. We've seen Their relationships have dissolved. (laughs) Hopes of success have dissolved as their jobs have been taken away. Hopes of a a picture-perfect marriage have dissolved as their relationship has crumbled. And they're left feeling like their lives have been taken away from them. So these are the very people, though, that God is often working in. You know how I know that? How many Christian testimonies have you ever heard when people come to faith, when they are in one of the lowest moments of their lives. Lots. See, we need to, to be alert to the broken lives of people around us. I want you to just encourage you to pay attention to hopelessness. Hopelessness. It's going to be all around you. Pay attention to it. And instead of running away from those people, run to them. Love them. Care about them. Tell them that you care about them. Tell them that you care about what they're going through. And then hold out the hope of Christ to them, that living hope that you have, that hope that that transcends broken relationships and broken bodies and broke bank accounts. Run to them. Focus horizontally. Be sensitive to what God is doing in the lives of those around you. 
even in the lives of your enemies. Focus point number three. Focus on eternity. Hold out the hope of Christ by clearly articulating the gospel. That's verses 29 through 34. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family, all his family. Then he, broke, then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. You see, with this crisis averted, Philippian jailer, he calls for a torch and they give him one and he goes into the cell with Paul and Silas and he is trembling in fear. He falls on his face before them and, and it says, then that's in a, in a show of, of, of humility and respect. And we have to think, what in the world is going on here? Well, have you ever had a near-death experience? Okay, I've had several near-death experiences. One of them is pretty vivid. I almost crashed a plane. I was uh, training for, uh, to be, become a private pilot, get my private pilot's license, and I went up on a day that I shouldn't have gone up on, and as I was coming down uh, in the plane, right before the, the wheels of the plane touched the runway, a, a, a crosswind, a gust of wind that I was totally unprepared for came and caused the plane to tilt the, the wrong way, the way that it shouldn't have been going. One wheel touched the, touched the runway and the plane, the back of the plane comes up like, like on its, on, on its uh, on the, well, the front of the plane's directed towards the ground, let's just say that. The last thing I remember is seeing on the glass cockpit, is seeing nothing but asphalt. And so I knew that I was getting ready to die. And so I took my hands off of the yoke of the plane. I grasped the, the dashboard in front of me, shut my eyes really tightly. And all I can tell you is that Jesus literally did take the wheel <laughs> because when I opened my eyes, the plane was going down the center of the runway. But I remember after that, that near-death experience, and I was trembling with fear. I, I was trembling so much that I really, I seriously did not think I could, I could drive the plane back to the terminal. And so that's what's happening with this Philippian jailer. He is trembling with fear because he's had this near-death experience, but something else is going on. He brings them out of the inner cell and he asks in a tone of desperation, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? See, this man's near-death experience had prompted a deep concern for meeting his maker. Just like the hearers of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he was cut to the heart. His conscience had been awakened and he was able to feel the crushing weight of his sin and his guilt before his creator and he was scared out of his mind. Have you ever had an experience like that? When your conscience becomes so keenly aware of your sin and your guilt before God, if, if you were converted, by the way, when you were young, you may not have a recollection of that, but if you were converted as an adult, you should have some sort of recollection of feeling at least some measure of, of guilt before God. Jesus says this uh, in John 16, 8. He says, and when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin 
and righteousness and judgment. Well, maybe you're here today, maybe you're listening online, and maybe you think, rebellion to God? I, I'm not, I haven't rebelled against God. I mean, I think I've, I haven't been perfect, but I think I've lived a, a life that I think he would, he would be pleased with. Well, I used to think the same exact thing until God showed me otherwise by holding a mirror before me. And I'd love to, to hold that mirror before you today. So let's go for it. Have you ever told a lie? How many lies do you think you've told in your entire life? If you're anything like me, countless. You know what scripture says about liars? It says all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. Revelation 21.8. You ever stolen anything? Doesn't really matter what the value of the thing that you've stolen. If you've taken something that's not rightfully yours, whether it's a penny out of your mama's purse, or whether you've robbed a bank, or maybe even stolen something off of the internet, music, movies, that means that you're a thief in God's eyes. 1 Corinthians 6.10 tells us that no thief will inherit the kingdom of God, which means no thief will be in heaven. How about this? Jesus said that if, if you've ever uh, looked at another person with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You ever looked at another person with lust? If you have, in God's eyes, you're an adulterer. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 tells us that no adulterer and no one that's sexually immoral as well will inherit the kingdom of God. See, in case you didn't catch it, the, what I, the mirror is actually the Ten Commandments. That's God's mirror to show us what we really are like. And so let me ask you, what does the mirror reveal about you so far? I've only shared three of the Ten Commandments. However bad you think it is, let me assure you, <laughs> it's a lot worse than you think. Because God actually sees down to the thoughts, the motives, and the attitudes of your heart. God set a day when he is going to judge the world, judge people, human beings like you and me, every single one of us. He's going to judge us by his standard of righteousness. And so the mirror, the Ten Commandments, actually shows you what that standard of righteousness is. And it shows you, if you look at yourself honestly, it already shows you what the verdict is going to be on that day. Feel the crushing weight of what that really means. Hell? Forever? Separated from the goodness of God, experiencing nothing but the wrath of God? And then, cry out in desperation with the jailer, what must I do to be saved? Look at Paul and Silas's answer. What must I do to be saved? Go clean yourself up and you'll be saved. Go be baptized and you'll be saved. Just have faith in something and you'll be saved. Just believe in God and you'll be saved. Just believe that God is forgiving and you'll be saved. No. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved, is that you don't do nothing. You don't do nothing. You don't do anything. <laughs> you don't do anything. You trust in what Christ has already done for you. You know, it never ceases to amaze me when I talk to professing Christians and I ask them a question that I know a lot of you who know me know I ask this question all the time, but it's okay. 
if you were to die and you're standing before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And when I hear professing Christians give me all kinds of answers and I never hear the name of Jesus, that's disturbing. See, brothers and sisters, this is a point that we cannot afford to be unclear on. Jesus is the object of someone's trust or that person is not saved. Who he is and what he's done. Paul and Silas most certainly are going to tell the Philippian jailer and his household who he is and what he's done. We see that in verse 32. It says they spoke the word of the Lord to him and his household. So let's talk. Who, who is he and what has he done? Well, God the Father in love sent his only son, his perfect son, into this world to take on human flesh, fully God and fully man. He lived or was, was, was uh, born under his own law, that law that you and I broke. Remember the Ten Commandments? He was born under that law. And he fulfilled that law through the entirety of his life, being perfect, earning, fulfilling righteousness for his people. When he went to the cross, he went as a substitute for his people to pay the debt for the sin that they had committed, to pay the penalty. So while he was on the cross, God the Father placed, his, placed the sins of, of, of his people on Christ, and Christ satisfied the debt for that sin, the wrath of God, paying it in full. Near the end of his suffering on the cross, he said, it is finished, and he laid down his life. He died, he was placed in a tomb, they sealed it up, he was dead, but after the third day, he rose again to eternal life, to never die again, vindicating that he is who he says he is and that he'll do what he says he will do. To give you a picture of what that looks like when somebody trusts in Christ, it's like this. You're in the courtroom of God, guilty. Table of evidence piled high against you. The verdict, verdict is getting ready to come down. And if you've trusted in Christ, here you see Jesus walking up to the judge's bench. As he walks up, his father, who is the judge, looks at him and he smiles he smiles because he's delighted in his son, but he also smiles because he knows why his son is coming and he knows he has planned it all. And as Jesus walks up, he has two sheets of paper in his hand. He hands his father one, and it's the sins of the person who's trusted in him. And it's got a big stamp on it that says, paid in full by me. And then he hands his father another piece of paper, and it's his perfect life of righteousness, never sinning once. And he says, please accept this on, on this person's behalf. His father says, I accept it. And he smiles and he stands up to give the verdict. And he says, righteous on the basis of my son's work for you. Jesus has accomplished so much for us. On our own, we stand condemned in the courtroom of God. In Jesus, we stand justified. On our own, we stand as enemies of God. In Jesus, we stand as children of God, adopted into his fam forever family. On our own, we stand as, as those who are hell-bound. But in Jesus, we stand as those who are heaven-bound on our way to, to a restored creation, living with him forever. Acts 4.12 tells us that salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name given to man by which we must be saved. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Are you trusting Him? Are you trusting Him? If you're not, I want to urge you to do so today. I want to plead with you. You're not promised another day. You're not promised another breath. You could walk out of here and a car could hit you. It happens to people every day. Don't trample on God's offer of mercy. Well, the Philippian jailer certainly didn't, and his household didn't. They trusted Christ immediately. There was a a noticeable change. I just wanted to show you this two fruits of salvation really quick. First, we see a genuine love for for other believers. (laughs) You see what happens? It says that he washed their wounds. He washes the prison grime and the blood off of the people that he, a couple hours ago, he couldn't have cared less about. He didn't care about alleviating their pain. He cared about inflicting pain. And he brings them into his house and, and he feeds them from his own table. See, this is a man who's, who's had that heart transplant. God has given him a new heart and now he loves Christians. Do you genuinely love other Christians? Do you genuinely love being in a covenant family with your church? Being in church, being together with other believers, doing life together, worshiping God together. If you do, That is a great assurance of your salvation. It's a fruit that accompanies salvation. Secondly, he he and his family have a posture of submission to Christ. You see, formerly, the only thing that he was submitted to was the Roman Empire and the Roman government. But now he's submitted to a higher king. He's submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the latter part part of verse 33, it says, The jailer and his household were baptized. They submitted to Christ's command to be baptized. Have you been baptized since you've believed in the Lord Jesus? If you haven't, and you're just holding out because you just just don't feel like it, if you profess that he is your Lord, show it. (laughs) Submit to him in baptism. Jesus himself says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, that's a posture of submission is certainly a fruit of salvation that we see in the jailer and that we see in all believers In verse 34, it says, And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This man has gone from despairing of hope to to a place where where he has joy. He had a knife to his chest, but now he's rejoicing. Just within a couple of hours. That's That's the power of the gospel. That's why we need to focus on eternity by holding out the gospel or the hope of Christ by clearly articulating the gospel. Well, verses 35 through 40 I want to just quickly point out just a couple of things that are going on here. See, it seems like Paul and Silas, as, as the magistrates, as they say, okay, you guys are free to go, it seems like they, the reason that they, initially when you read it, the reason that they're so saying, no, you need to come because you've, you've broken the law, it seems like they're, they're worried about their own personal uh, uh, ego. It seems like they're, they're worried about just a, just a vendetta against these people. Well, what's happening here? I love what, what John MacArthur says about this. He says that it is, what's happening here is called spiritual blackmail. Spiritual blackmail. And here's, here's how it goes. It was illegal to punish a Roman citizen, and Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. It was illegal to punish a Roman citizen without giving them a trial. They didn't have a trial like a Roman citizen would have. Well, they punished them, beat them with rods, put them in jail, without, and, and that was a breaking of the Roman law. Paul is saying, hey, we're Roman citizens. 
you broke the law against us, and we know that you broke the law against us magistrates. And so, you know what? We're getting ready to, to mosey on out of town here. But we're going to have a church that's going to be meeting here in town. And if you lay one hand on this church, we'll report you to the Roman authorities. You see, he's protecting the church, protecting the church. And then the very last verse, it says, So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. They encouraged them and departed. What were they encouraging them with? They're probably encouraging them about their suffering. Saying, I know you guys have, have seen us go through some, some pretty rough stuff, but look, I want you to see the sovereign hand of God in all of this. God ordained our suffering so that we might go into that prison, be connected to this Philippian jailer, that God might use us in order to share the gospel with him and convert him and his family. And now that that purpose is done, you notice we're out of prison and we're free and we're going on because God has a purpose for us in other places. And so next week we'll see them going into Thessalonica and we'll pick up there. But as we close today, four years after the Titanic sunk, there was a gentleman that stood up in Ontario, Canada and gave his testimony. He said, I was on the, the Titanic that night and I ended up in the open water, clinging to a piece of, of wreckage from the ship. He said, I was sitting there in the open water. He said, a gentleman swam up to me by the name of John Harper. John Harper yelled out to me. He said, man, are you saved? I said, no. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He said, a wave took John Harper away from him. As he stay, stayed there and sat there, well, a wave miraculously brought him back in John Harper's, or back, brought him, John Harper back into his path. And John Harper said, man, are you saved yet? <laughs> the man said, I, I honestly can say, no, no, I'm not. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He said, about that time, John Harper lost his bout with hypothermia, sunk down into the deep blue ocean to go be with his Lord. He said, as I sat there in the middle of that ocean on that night with two miles of ocean underneath me, he said, I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. I was John Harper's last convert. Have you ever considered the possibility that God's purpose for your suffering is bigger than you. Let us be a church that stays focused because God uses the suffering of his children for the salvation of his enemies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know every suffering that's going on in this church. Just looking at the prayer list this week, there are those in this place that are suffering with chronic illnesses, surgeries, grief, financial struggles, marital struggles, caregivers, stressful jobs, probably other things that I, I know nothing about. Lord, will you give your people encouragement today to stay focused 
to remember that you have purpose in their suffering. May you help them, Lord. Help us all as we go through suffering to stay focused because you are saving your enemies through the suffering of your children. To stay focused on you, to stay focused on our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who actually stayed focused for the entirety of his life in order to save his enemies. We ask for your grace. We trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.